Baptism and Gifts, study number two, entitled Speaking in Tongues, Evidence of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's good to be with you again this morning in the continuation of our series in this Pittsburgh area seminar, our series dealing with the baptism and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. As many of you have already heard, this is a, a series of seven lessons dealing with the baptism in the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and it'll be our a procedure each time as we continue the series to list the series for you, for those who are uh, new to the session today and for the benefit of those who will be seeing this lesson on videotape, to list for you the series and uh, say just a word about each one, and then to review uh, a bit about what we covered yesterday. A series of seven lessons uh, with these titles. The first one, the one we dealt with yesterday, the baptism in the Holy Spirit as a second experience of Jesus Christ following conversion. Today we're going to be dealing with the theme of speaking in tongues as the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The second session, second lesson, speaking in tongues, the evidence of the baptism. The third we've entitled man's part in miracles because man has a part to play in releasing the miraculous power of God in his life. This has real relevance uh, concerning the baptism and the gifts of the Spirit. The fourth, we will confine ourselves pretty muchly to dealing with specific instructions and teachings about teaching about how to enter into the baptism in the Holy Spirit, for we have learned through experience that there are certain things that need to be said and taught which make it very simple for people to move into this supernatural dimension of the Christian life. Uh, the fifth of the seven lessons then deals with the gift of tongues its place and purpose in the body of Christ, contrasting it with the uh, tongues as the evidence of the baptism, which we'll be talking about today. The fifth lesson, the gift of tongues, its place and purpose in the body of Christ. Then lesson number six, we'll be talking about moving on into the other gifts of the Spirit, especially the other gifts of inspiration, the gift of tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. You know the nine gifts of the Spirit, as Paul lists them in, lists them in the 12th chapter of Corinthians, are divided and can be divided into three categories of three gifts each. The three gifts of inspiration, three gifts of revelation, and three gifts of power. The three gifts of inspiration, uh, tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. The three gifts of revelation, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, discerning of spirits, and the gifts of power, faith, healing, and miracles. And so the sixth lesson we'll be dealing with how to move into the spiritual gifts dealing primarily with tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. And the seventh lesson will deal with uh, how we move into the other six gifts of the Spirit. So those are the seven lessons that we're covering in this series. Today we're dealing with the second, speaking in tongues as the evidence of the baptism. But before we get into it, let me just say by way of review, just for a couple of minutes, what we discussed yesterday. In lesson number one, as we talked about the baptism in the Holy Spirit as a second encounter with Jesus Christ, that we always use as an introduction to this kind of teaching simply because so many people do not understand, many good Christian people do not understand exactly how the baptism in the Holy Spirit fits into their understanding of the Christian faith. Many good Christians have said, well, I thought I received the Holy Spirit when I was converted. And so we took time yesterday to to compare and to contrast uh, the experience that we have when we meet Jesus as Savior and then the experience we have when we meet Jesus as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. 
And we pointed out that they are two separate experiences given for two separate reasons, and they accomplish two separate results. And uh, we summed it up, in essence, by saying that conversion is that experience for the non-Christian, which makes him a Christian, while the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the experience for the Christian to make him a powerful Christian. The baptism in the Holy Spirit in no way uh, uh, demeans or detracts from what we have in Christ as a result of our conversion. It simply builds tremendously on it. And it is the, the experience through which we move into what I call the supernatural realm of the things of God, that realm where these gifts that we're teaching about operate in the believer's life. So today, then, we're going to move on and talk about speaking in tongues as the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people say or want to know, one of the first things they want to know is if they're new in, this, in their search along these lines, they'll say, well, what exactly is that business of speaking in tongues? Uh, what happens, really, when you're speaking in tongues? And, of course, many of us have heard false teaching and, and all kinds of fearful statements made about how it's emotionalism and how it's of the devil and all of this sort of thing, and we'll be uh, unraveling some of those emotional knots during the session today. But people say, well, what exactly is speaking in tongues? So let's just give a kind of arbitrary definition of what we mean and then give one scriptural uh, uh, citation, which I think clearly indicates this. Essentially, speaking in tongues is praying supernaturally by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural way to pray. Now, that prayer may be in terms of praise and worship and adoration, as it often comes, especially at the point that we receive the baptism. It also, as a supernatural form of praying, can be used in terms of petition and intercession. And there's a very beautiful scripture that indicates this for us in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. I'm sure that many people haven't interpreted it this way, but those of us who are baptized in the Spirit uh, see quite clearly what Paul is talking about. Uh, in the 8th chapter, in the 26th and 27th verse, when he's talking about how the Spirit helps us pray. I happen to be reading this morning from the Revised Standard Version. Uh, your King James will read slightly differently, but not enough to have any significance. Paul says, likewise, this is Romans 8, 26 and 27. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. Your King James says, with groanings and sighs too deep for words. And then in verse 27 is this beautiful, clear definition of what actually is taking place. He says, and he who searches the hearts of men knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I'll read that again. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is what Spirit-inspired prayer does. This is what praying in the Spirit is. And speaking in tongues is praying in the Spirit. Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, my Spirit prayeth. And so when we are defining or describing the act of speaking in tongues, it's not emotionalism, it's not fanaticism, it's not gibberish, it's a manifestation of the supernatural power of God in the believer's life, and by definition it is praying supernaturally by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, through the session this morning we'll be giving certain examples uh, out of life which illustrate various things about tongues, and uh, this is a good place to give one which illustrates specifically 
this truth that praying in tongues is a supernatural prayer and the definition that Paul gives here that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. One of the classic books which uh, deals with, the, uh, with this phenomenon, of course, is John Sherrill's classic book, uh, They Speak in Other Tongues. And in it, John describes uh, an incident that he discovered in his research. You'll recall how he undertook this uh, investigation as a writer and as an author to investigate the phenomena. He was a good Episcopalian Christian, but not spirit baptized. But what happened was after he got into the quest and got into his own uh, research and got around spirit baptized people, he ended up getting the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, this baptism in the Holy Spirit, Ken Hagen says, is like getting around people of God. It's like playing on a slippery creek bank. You know, sooner or later, you're going to slide in. And this is what happened to Cheryl. He became convinced by his own research as a journalist, not as a hungry Christian, but as a journalist in his search, that hunger was quickened and he ended up receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And in one of the illustrations that he uses in this book, which so clearly illustrates the truth that it is the Spirit, we know not how to pray as we ought, but that the Spirit inter uh, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He records an incident, incident that happened in the nation of India a number of years ago among some converts of the British Missionary Society over there, among the Indians uh, and Indian Christians, a young, there was an outpouring of the Spirit, and a young Indian girl, about 11 or 12, was baptized in the Spirit with this evidence of speaking in tongues. And of course, it created quite a furor uh, in that staid missionary society because it was practically unheard of in those days, and there was extreme concern as to whether it was valid and this sort of thing. So they tried to do some exploring about it and tried to find someone who could understand what this young Indian Christian girl was saying when she was praying in tongues in this strange way. And they finally found a man who was a linguist or a man who was a scholar who came and listened to the little Indian girl praying and confirmed that this little Indian girl who'd never been outside her province in India was praying in Aramaic, the ancient language of the Hebrews. And uh, not only that, she was praying in flawless Aramaic, and she was praying in that language that God would protect the Christians in the nation of Libya, in Africa, who were under persecution. And this little 12-year-old girl who'd never been outside her own province probably didn't even know there was a nation of Libya, and there are, uh, are certainly that there were Christians there under persecution, was praying supernaturally by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Aramaic that God would protect and bless those Christians under persecution. Now, this is a beautiful example of the scripture that Paul is giving here. We know not how to pray as we ought. And then he concludes by saying, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, it was God's will that earnest, heartfelt prayer be offered in order that those Christians might be blessed. Now, you or I may ask, why does God do it this way? Well, I don't know, but God didn't ask me when he decided to do this. He has just chosen to pour out his power in response to prayer. And he has also chosen to help us pray correctly when we don't know how to pray correctly. And one of the ways he does that is to inspire us supernaturally by his Holy Spirit through this phenomena of speaking in tongues. So again, let us just define what we're talking about. Speaking in tongues is a supernatural, a frankly supernatural experience in which one praise in his spirit by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those phrases of praise and adoration to God and uttering those prayers of intercession and petition which are directly in line with the will of God and which God can answer. 
Praying in tongues, then, speaking in tongues, is praying supernaturally by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift from God who loves his church to the church. Now, of course, one of the questions that immediately comes up as we get into the discussion, and, and we'll be dealing with some of those questions as we go along today. Incidentally, the little book on the book table, a handbook on Holy Spirit baptism, deals with some of these very questions and sets out to answer them in a brief and concise way. But one of the most common questions that's asked about this phenomenon or about tongues, as many of you have heard it and some of you ask it yourself, a uh, person engaged in his own spiritual quest realizes the vitality and power in spirit-baptized believers, but he's hung up about tongues. And so he asks the question, uh, do you have to speak in tongues in order to have the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Uh, and so it's because of this question that we are addressing ourselves to this subject. And you can tell, by the way, that people ask the question. They make it sound like you've asked them to take a dose of castor oil or something. You see, do you have to speak in tongues in order to get the baptism? You can just know they've heard some pretty ugly things about it, you know, about what's wrong with it and what it isn't and why you shouldn't do it. All been, most of us have been victims at some time or another of false teaching about this. Uh, and by this question, we also understand that it is the tongues that is the controversial part of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Let's be frank and honest and say that. Admit it, that if it were not for speaking in tongues, the baptism in the Holy Spirit would be a perfectly respectable experience for almost any Christian. But as it is, it isn't, you see. Uh, although there are some Christian groups that teach that, yes, you can have the baptism without tongues. And they primarily teach that because of their own fears about tongues. So the questions come, question comes up, do you have to speak in tongues to have the baptism in the Holy Spirit? I like Brother David Duplessis' answer to that question. He says, you don't have to, you get to. It's a blessing. It's a gift from God. And we ought to be very careful how we criticize the manifestations or the gifts of God. Many times, of course, the question is asked out of fear as well as out of ignorance. We are afraid of the things that we don't understand. And when we're ignorant about something, it's natural for us to be afraid of it. And it is the tongues that is the point of controversy in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, as, again, to quote John Sherrill in his book, They Speak With Other Tongues, he says one place after investigating in church history the reaction to people about this, he said he came to a conclusion, very simply, and it was this. Tongues make people fight. And that's right. Tongues make people fight. Uh, it is my conviction, born out of experience, that speaking in tongues because of what it represents in the life of the believer, the tremendous release of power and the introduction into the supernatural realm of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because tongues represents that, that Satan is diametrically and diabolically opposed to it, and he will do everything he can to discredit it. He will do everything he can to stir up opposition to it. Let me give you just an example, or a couple of examples out of life about this. Why, and I think many of you would understand that this is true even in your own experience or in the experience of people you know. Uh, when I was pastoring as a, in a church as a pastor and was moving in ministerial circles more or less, one of the things that I noticed was that ministers of denom denominational churches in their own fellowships and in their own organized uh, uh, groups and committees and so forth often worked together could continually work together in peace and harmony and goodwill and loving fellowship with all sorts and kinds of peoples and groups, interdenominational and interfaith, and they could put their arms around and embrace and being loving relationship with people who were utter pagan 
although pretending to be Christian, ministers who completely deny the inspiration of scriptures, deny the virgin birth, who say God is dead, and uh, put their arms around people of other faiths, Buddhists, or, or, uh, or Mohammedans and others in these uh, councils of, of uh, religious discussion, and just exhibit the greatest and the most profound kind of Christian love and concern for all of these weird groups that really we would say are these unusual people who are outside the Christian faith. They can exercise real love and generosity in their spirit and attitude. And these same ministers, though, when someone of their own group stands up and testifies to having had the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, will turn livid with rage and get all shook up and begin to denounce and get all uh, disturbed about somebody testifying to what is a clearly defined biblical Christian experience. Now, the interesting question is why? Why should a man who is a leader of a flock, a minister, a man of God, find it so easy to exhibit Christian love to everybody except the person who testifies to a supernatural experience of the Holy Spirit? Where does that kind of opposition come from? Where does that kind of reaction and that kind of anger and that kind of emotional uh, uh, criticism come from as it rises up in the minister's gorge? What, makes, what keeps him at peace with the pagans and gets him upset at vital New Testament Christianity? Obviously, the source of the opposition is from Satan. Satan has nothing to lose when Christian ministers accept non-Christians as their equals and say it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you believe something. And this is, frankly, is what some... Christian ministers, uh, the way they approach their convictions, no longer believe that the Christian faith is unique in any way. Well, Satan enjoys that. He has nothing to lose. But then, you see, when somebody testifies to having entered into the supernatural of the Holy Spirit through the baptism and speaking in tongues, of course Satan gets enraged. So I think this uh, ought to be one of the signs or evidences to us of how important this is. The very fact that it is the central point of controversy about the baptism and the Holy Spirit indicates to us uh, how earnestly and how determined Satan is into trying to discredit it. Uh, another experience that I often remember with amusement, I have friends out in Colorado, a minister and his wife of my denomination, Christian church, who are baptized in the Spirit, and they're still in their church, still ministering, but they're having a rather difficult time. They have a number of people in their church baptized in the Spirit, but they have a lot of opposition. Uh, but they're trying to handle the thing wisely and with love. And the minister's wife teaches a young, an intermediate class in Sunday school, about 12-year-olds. And of course, she's wanting to be faithful to her witness and yet not engender opposition. So, uh, and she wanted at the proper time to introduce this subject. So she very wisely chose only one Sunday in the year to talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, and that was on the day of Pentecost, on Pentecost Sunday, when the material was actually in the Sunday school quarterly. And so in a very gentle, loving way, on that one Sunday in the year, she shared something of her own experience with these intermediate children, and they talked a bit about the gifts of the Spirit and about speaking in tongues. The next Sunday, when the children returned, she was anxious to know if, the, if they'd shared this with their parents and what the reaction had been. So she asked one of the little girls, uh, or she asked the children, uh, did any of you talk about what we, to, with your parents, about what we talked about in Sunday school last Sunday? And one little girl said, yes, I told my parents, and they got all upset. And uh, the minister's wife said, what do you mean? She said, what did your parents say? Well, she said, my mama said, I get sick and tired of hearing all that about that speaking in tongues stuff all the time. 
Well, speaking in tongue stuff all the time, once a year on one Sunday when it was dealt with in the Sunday school lesson was too much. You see, any is too much for a person who's really turned off. And this is the kind of opposition that is satanically inspired. Now, understand, I'm not being mean to be critical personally of the people who are reacting this way. They are victims of their own doubts and prejudices and unbelief. Uh, and no one sees or understands this until God turns the light of his Holy Spirit upon the Word and the Word becomes quickened. But we need to understand, uh, we can see through this, the need for teaching about what tongues, the place tongues has as the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit and how through fear and ignorance and false teaching so, men, so much emotional prejudice has been engendered against this particular phenomena uh, that it takes teaching to try to unravel that and make people open and receptive to what God is doing. Uh, those of us who are in meetings like this often in teaching uh, often become amused when articles are written in magazines or newspapers about uh, charismatic teachers or preachers. They don't say about people like Bob Mumford and myself, they don't say uh, call us spirit-baptized teachers or charismatics, occasionally they do this, but you know what we're often referred to as? Tongue speakers. That's what we're called, tongue speakers. You see, that's the point of controversy. That's the colorful thing even the journalists know. And they're out to get readers, and so they'll lift this one little evidence up uh, because it creates an emotional stir. Let me tell you something. If speaking in tongues was all that had happened on the day of Pentecost, the experience would have died out a long time ago. It's that tongues is the sign or evidence of something tremendous happening within. It's only one external evidence. But because all of the center of all the attention is focused on this particular phenomena, that we have to deal with it. People will say uh, to teachers like myself and others, why do you spend so much time talking about speaking in tongues? Well, the answer is very simple. That's where the controversy is. People don't, usually the critics don't usually talk to us about or ask us about the release of power in our lives. Uh, at least not at first. What they get hung up on is the speaking in tongues. So the reason we have to spend time in teaching about this and explaining it out of the scriptures is because this is where the focus of attention comes. This is the point of controversy. And... Uh, as you know, that controversy expresses itself in many ways. It's called fanaticism, emotionalism, and of the devil. Well, we need to remember that speaking in tongues isn't any of these things. It's a supernatural gift of God that was first prophesied by Jesus himself. Over in the 16th chapter of Mark, verses 16 and 17, uh, and just before Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, he commissions his disciples to go out and preach the gospel to all the world, and then he lists the signs which are to follow the preaching of the gospel. Again, I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. But in verse 17, Jesus testifies to the supernatural phenomena which is going to accompany the preaching of the word of God as the divine supernatural stamp of authority and power upon the gospel message. And Jesus said, uh, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues. Uh, this miraculous phenomena of speaking in tongues which then appeared on the day of Pentecost. And most biblical scholars agree, although I'm going to talk in a few minutes about uh, uh, theologies that are built up which deny this, most biblical scholars agree that what happened on the day of Pentecost, that's the next scripture we'll look at, you, some of you already know it by memory in Acts 2, that the thing that happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out with the evidence of speaking in tongues was a fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied 
in the last chapter of Mark. So uh, if you want the exercise, you can turn with me simply to Acts 2.4, which is the next scripture, which describes what happened when the promise of power, which Jesus had given his disciples uh, in the things he said just before he ascended to heaven, telling them to tarry in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high, when the promise for that power was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, it states very simply what happened in Acts 2.4. Uh, now, before we read it, let me make this comment. One of the things that is often said was, well, but there were a lot of other things happened before Pentecost. You talk about tongues, what about the sound of the rushing mighty wind and the cloven tongues of fire? Yeah, there were some celestial fireworks took place uh, on the day of Pentecost, which seemed to testify to the ushering in of a new age. It was a cataclysmic moment in history because it was the ushering in of the age of the Holy Spirit. But notice that the sound of the rushing mighty wind and the supernatural appearance of what appeared to be tongues of fire over the heads of those who were in the upper room, these things preceded the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts 4, 2, 4 tells us precisely what happened at the moment they received the Holy Spirit. The scripture says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and what? And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the other tongues that this refers to in Acts 2, 4, most scholars agree is the thing that Jesus uh, prophesied in the last chapter of Mark. Now let me say this additional thing about those other phenomena. They do occur. They do occur. There have been other times when this has happened. I've heard the personal testimony of people who on their receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit in a group or when the Holy Spirit began to move mightily, which resulted in the baptism of the Spirit of some people in a basement prayer meeting in Toronto, Canada years ago. One of my parishioners uh, in my church there told me about it. He said they heard the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Uh, and in our own prayer meeting in Toronto, Canada, some years ago, when Spirit-baptized Christians were praying together, one of the, those men, as we were sitting in a room praying silently, opened his eyes and saw, he said, we just sort of disappeared from view. And he saw just like shafts of flame over every chair where, we'd been, where we were sitting. He said it was like uh, uh, the blue flames on a burner on a gas stove. So I want to testify, I know those supernatural things happen. But the point is that the identifying evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the repeatable evidence of the other accounts in the book of Acts, anytime there was any supernatural evidence that the Holy Spirit uh, had been poured out, the thing that is repeated on a number of occasions, we find, is the single evidence of speaking in tongues. And we want to stress this simply because we're teaching on that subject today, that tongues is the scriptural evidence that one has received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, without taking time to turn to these scriptures, I'm going to refer to them uh, for you anyway. As we mentioned yesterday, there are five accounts in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is poured out uh, in the experience we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They are in Acts 2, Acts 8, 9, 10, and 19. And in three of these accounts, the clearly specified outward evidence, supernatural evidence of the Holy Spirit's arrival in power was the evidence of speaking in tongues. Uh, this is in Acts 2-4 that we just read, the day of Pentecost where the 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Acts 10 where the Holy Spirit falls on the house of Cornelius after they believe Peter's preaching and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit begin to speak in tongues and magnify God. And then in Acts 19 where Paul finds these 12 Ephesian believers 
and uh, finds out they don't have the Holy Spirit, first baptizes them in water in the name of Jesus, and then lays hands on them and prays for them, and all twelve receive the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. So in these clear, these three accounts, the clear evidence is speaking in tongues. And we know also that in Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion, who became Paul in Acts 9, as we mentioned yesterday, Ananias came and laid hands on him to pray for him not only to receive his sight, but that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know Paul was baptized in the Spirit at that point. We know, too, that he received the evidence of speaking in tongues, not because it's mentioned there, for it isn't. But over in 1 Corinthians, he says, he brags about it to the Corinthians. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. So we know that Paul himself was quite familiar, more familiar than any other, perhaps, of the New Testament leaders with this phenomenon. So here, out of four of these accounts, of these five accounts, we see uh, when the Holy Spirit is poured out that there is the accompanying sign or evidence of speaking in tongues. And so I think it, it uh, becomes clear to us then that God has a purpose in this, that God is wanting to say something. He's wanting to prove something. He's wanting to demonstrate something. This is why when we consider tongues in this regard, we are considering it as the identifying sign or evidence that the Holy Spirit has arrived with power. For that matter, a case can even be made for the fifth occasion in Acts uh, 8 where uh, Philip is preaching at Samaria and uh, Simon the magician is among those who are converted. And then when Peter and John come down and pray for the new converts to receive the Holy Spirit, tongues are not mentioned in that account, but the scripture says that when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, uh, he wanted to buy the power. You remember the story. He said to Peter and John, offered them money, he said, give me this power that whoever I lay my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what was it that Simon saw? How can you see the Holy Spirit being dispensed or being distributed? There must have been some identifying physical sign. And here again, many biblical scholars simply include this along with the other four accounts of the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit and say obviously what Simon the magician saw was that these people began to praise God in other tongues, saw and heard. Now that is by inference, not by what's actually in the scriptures, but there are numbers of, of the Bible students and scholars who very clearly uh, come to that conclusion, which I think is a valid conclusion. But scripturally, as I say, in those three accounts, four if you include Saul's conversion, tongues is the miraculous sign that identifies the arrival of the Holy Spirit with power. Someone has rightly pointed out about the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about in this series, that all of them, except tongues and its accompanying sign of interpretation, its accompanying gift of interpretation, all appeared in the Old Testament. They were gifts, ministries that were evidence among God's people throughout history at various times. And that speaking in tongues alone among supernatural manifestations was uniquely identified with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. God did a new thing to demonstrate miraculously the significance of the arrival of the Holy Spirit in the birthday of the church. All right, now let's look just for a few minutes at uh, another one of the questions or oppositions that often comes to questions in opposition to the tongues. As we pointed out yesterday, there is a vast difference between a person who builds his theology uh, out of scriptures based on his own experience. When he's experienced what the scripture talks about, He's going to have an understanding of the scriptures uh, that's different from the person who builds a theology out of scriptures who has not experienced what the scriptures are talking about. And we 
uh, discuss this in terms of uh, the baptism as a second experience. Let's look at it now in light of speaking in tongues because there have been uh, very carefully worked out theories uh, developed and printed and distributed and taught that talk about all the various kinds of tongues. Now, there's not enough time in one lesson, one hour's tape or lesson, to go into detail about all these, and to go, but we can touch on it uh, rapidly enough, but clearly enough, I think, which will be a help. If Bob Mumford tries to cover 2,000 years of church history in one hour, I think I can take a crack at looking at a couple of these, uh, of these theories. So the, one of the theories that people have come up with say that there are different kinds of tongues, and Paul's not talking about the same thing, and they go by the adjectives which precede the nouns in those various scriptures. There are the new tongues, which are talked about in the last chapter of Mark, the other tongues in Acts 2, 4. In Acts 10, they're just called tongues when the Holy Spirit fell on the house of Cornelius and, and Peter and the others heard them pray, speaking in tongues. And then in Corinthians, when Paul talks about uh, tongues, he says that the King James Version says, uh, he who speaks in an unknown tongue. So here are these adjectives. There are new tongues, there are other tongues, just plain tongues with no adjective, and unknown tongues. And interestingly enough, theologies are, are, are theories have been built that in each case this is talking about something altogether different. And uh, I want to present to you, or simply to declare to you, my conviction that these theories are built not on experience but on lack of experience. And those of us who've moved into the experience of speaking in tongues can see both from the scriptures and and by the verification of our own experience that the phenomena of this heavenly language, the phenomena of glossolalia, as uh, the theologians call it, or as a friend of mine calls it, glossowatchima call it, but anyway, whether you call it glossolalia or speaking in tongues, the phenomena is essentially the same. It is the application or the usage of it which determines uh, the control that the scriptures talk about or how it's to be used and when. But whether it's talking about new tongues or other tongues or tongues or unknown tongues, it's still talking about the same phenomena. Now, we've already stated that the new tongues, which, Paul, which uh, Jesus uses the phrase in the last chapter of Mark, nearly every scholar is agreed are, is the same thing as the other tongues which happened on the day of Pentecost, that that scripture is a fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied. A couple of years ago, through an unusual series of circumstances, I found myself in a with a group of Christians in Central Europe, and we were preparing to go in behind the Iron Curtain to distribute some literature. And before we made this trip into Yugoslavia and to Hungary, which is a very interesting story in itself, we were meeting with a group in Austria, in a little town called Grosgemein, Austria, one night, with a group of missionaries who'd gathered uh, to hear my testimony, to hear me teach. I was the fellow, sort of, who was coming through. And uh, the man who had organized this little expedition had friends in that area. And he had some missionaries, evangelical missionaries, who he wanted to expose to the charismatic. And so I shared some of my testimony and taught some of the things I'm teaching here. And a, a fine young Baptist missionary who's a very fine, zealous man and has a good ministry uh, in Central Europe had developed this very theory I'm talking about. And he rattled this stuff off. New tongues is one thing, other tongues is something else, tongues is something else, and unknown tongues is something else. And so we spent the course of uh, the rest of the evening in uh, discussing, uh, I tried to discuss, he tried to argue, uh, about this. But he had said, he said, you know, I know about that new tongues in the last chapter of Mark. When I was converted, God gave me a new language in that I talk as a Christian now, no longer as a pagan. Well, now you see, that's the kind of rationalization or the kind of statement or the kind of spiritualizing of scripture 
that a person can do when he does not have the actual experience. But those of us who are baptized in the Spirit with the evidence in tongues don't have any difficulty in knowing what Jesus was talking about when he said, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons, they'll speak with new tongues, they'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. He's talking about miraculous ministries and gifts. But you see, this man who is not in that realm, this missionary, he had to give a different interpretation of new tongues. So he says in his case, what, that's what Jesus is talking about is simply that the Lord cleans up your speech when you become a Christian. Well, now that's true, but that's not what the scripture is talking about. All right, we've seen the new tongues and the other tongues is the same thing. Well, what about where the tongues at the house of Cornelius where there isn't any other tongues? Well, Paul says, I mean, Peter says about that experience when he gets back to Jerusalem, he says, when I saw that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them as on us at the beginning, who was I that I could withstand God? So by the words of his own mouth, Peter is saying, they got what we got. The reason Peter knew that those Cornelius folk had received the baptism was because he heard them speaking in tongues. And he says, what happened to them was what happened to us back on the day of Pentecost. So by Peter's own definition, the tongues, the plain tongues with no adjective that hit the house of Cornelius was the same as the other tongues which he and the others experienced on the day of Pentecost. An even more common obje objection has to do with this unknown tongues that Paul is talking about in Corinthians. Now, let's say right off, I hope you recognize, you who use the King James, that you'll notice that the word unknown is in italics. Now, I hope you progress beyond the point uh, of some Christians I've discovered who feel that when they see a word in italics, that means you're supposed to emphasize it when you read it aloud. That's not what the italics are for in the King James Version. The words in italics in your King James are simply words that have been inserted by the translators. They are not there in the original Greek, in the original manuscripts. So the term unknown tongues in 1 Corinthians, as it's used several times in the 12th chapter, 14th, does not actually appear in the Greek. It's just the word tongues. But because Paul says about that kind of tongues, which we've called unknown tongues, uh, he who speaks in an unknown tongue whispers mysteries in the spirit, and no man understands. And many people have said that the kind of tongues that Paul was talking about were different from the tongues on the day of Pentecost because on the day of Pentecost the tongues were in a known language. Some of the leading uh, men of, uh, and men of whom I respect and admire who have deep lives of prayer have written pamphlets and, uh, and papers arguing this point, saying that the tongues that are happening today are not the same as the tongues on the day of Pentecost. They may have been the gibberish that Paul talked about in ecstatic speech uh, in Corinthians, and we could say something about that. Uh, tongues are never ecstatic. Maybe we better say something about it. I'll try to remember to come back to it. Uh, but these men say, and I could name some of them by name, but I won't for the sake of the record and the tape, have said that what happened on the day of Pentecost when the tongues were in a known language never happened again. That never has happened in the 20th century. This was the missionary in Austria's, one of his arguments, uh, which... Uh, we shot down right away with a little personal testimony. And this has been the argument of many other theologians of our own day. They say, well, what's happening today is a fake or it's emotionalism. It's not what happened on the day of Pentecost because on the day of Pentecost they understood the known languages. They were known languages. And we know this is true. People gathered from a, devout Jews from every nation under heaven and heard these languages, probably 14 different languages in all. Now, I think it's worth mentioning here. I hadn't, didn't have it in my outline, but I feel led of the Lord to go ahead and put it in. About this business of ecstatic speech, tongues being called ecstatic speech. 
How many of you have heard that? Say, tongues is ecstatic utterance. You know, that really, and you've read that in certain versions of the scripture, certain the modern versions call this, though I uh, speak with the tongues of men or of ecstasy, it says, and have not love. Boy, when you find that term ecstatic speech, that really turns your imagination loose. You see, you can imagine all sorts of things. But that simply is dishonest translation. There is nothing when the scriptures are talked about, uh, uh, there's nothing on the, the account of the day of Pentecost when the Christians begin to speak in other tongues uh, where they spoke with ecstatic speech. But interestingly enough, there were ecstatic people present on the day of Pentecost. Turn with me back to Acts 2, 4 again, in, or in Acts 2, and, and let's look at this passage a minute. I hadn't counted on getting into this, but I think it's worth uh, mentioning. There were ecstatic people present on the day of Pentecost. You'll find them mentioned in Acts 2, verse 7, and again down in verse 12. And again, I'm reading from the, the RSV, but that doesn't make any difference. Verse 7 says, uh, these are about the people who came and heard the disciples praying in tongues, speaking in tongues. And it says, they were all amazed and wondered, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then we hear them speaking in our language? Then down in verse 12, we find that same question repeated. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? That little word amazed is the key. That word in the Greek manuscripts from which your New Testament is translated, that is the very same word that is translated in English as ecstasy. It is the Greek word meaning ecstasy. The Greek word extanto is a pretty close pronunciation of it if I don't forget my seminary Greek. But it's the word that properly to be translated into English is the word for ecstatic or ecstasy. And if the translators were honest, to this and clear at this point, they would say that these people who came and heard, not that they were all amazed, but that they were ecstatic and said to one another, are not all these Galileans? They were ecstatic and said to one another, what does this mean? So the ecstatic people on the day of Pentecost, mind you, were not the 120 who received the baptism and began to speak in tongues. They were the amazed crowds that came and listened and grew beside themselves at the wonder of that miracle. But you see, Emotional prejudice will find its way even into the minds of Bible scholars who otherwise would translate and deal with the scriptures honestly. You see, so this has added fuel to the fire, you know, that, that speaking in tongues is emotionalism. Scholars and, and biblical authorities have heard this, and so they just accepted that prejudice is true, and when it came time to translate these scriptures, uh, uh, some of them ended up translating tongues as ecstatic speech. There's nothing ecstatic about speaking in tongues any more than there's anything ecstatic about praying in any other way. It is a supernatural way of praying and it may be filled with joy and with, uh, and with adoration, but the man is in control. The very term of, of becoming ecstatic uh, uh, implies that you lose control of yourself. Well, that was a bit of a diversion. We were talking about these people who say that tongues as a known language, that's never be re been repeated. Well, most of you who are here know that this isn't true, that current experience has repeatedly shown in meetings where the Holy Spirit is moving today that some person speaks in tongues, someone else interprets the tongues, there'll be a third person present who will stand up and testify that the man who spoke in tongues spoke in German, even though he knows no German, and the person who interpreted the tongues uh, gave a perfect English translation of what was said in German, although he knows no German, but the third person present could both recognize the German and the English. So it's there, you see, would be a case where, where it's a repetition of what happened on the day of Pentecost. 
And for the people who say that that can't happen today, we could keep them busy all night listening to stories of this kind. And I think it's worthwhile to share just two or three illustrations about this. Because uh, while they are not overly common, they are frequent enough that they ought to convince any man unless he's just downright determined that he won't believe. Any person that's open to the truth of what God's doing today will very shortly as he investigates this phenomena of tongues come up against this fact that there are miraculous instances being taking place almost daily where this sort of thing happens. A person speaks supernaturally by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit just like that little Egyptian girl who prayed in Aramaic that we mentioned at the beginning of the lesson and someone hears that language and understands. I was in a se session where this happened in Youngstown, Ohio, not about a year ago at the Full Gospel Businessmen's chapter there, and at the, I was the speaker. At the close of the meeting, there was tongues and interpretation, and somebody else spoke in tongues, and somebody else interpreted, all quite in order. And then a third little brother stood up and spoke in tongues in a kind of a strange clickety-clack language that I didn't recognize, and there was no interpretation. And I sort of waited to see if I got a quickening or the interpretation came to me it didn't I sort of glanced at some of the other officers of the chapter they didn't seem to have anything either so I my immediate reaction was well the brother was just out of order I didn't feel strongly enough about it to rebuke him but as you know according to Paul if any speaks in a tongue in an assembly let there be or two or three and let someone else interpret so in one sense we could say the brother might have been out of order but we went on with the altar call but after the close of the meeting one of the officers of that chapter brought up with him a young man to talk to me a young American serviceman who was all shook up, a Christian young boy who'd come back from Vietnam. While he'd, and he came to that meeting viewing it all with a kind of a jaundiced eye, uh, including my testimony, pretty well skeptical of everything, until the manifestation of the gifts at the end. And then he got all amazed and astounded because while he'd been in Vietnam, he had trained and learned the Vietnamese language and had been used to interrogate prisoners. And he came back to this country, came to that meeting, sat through not believing anything he heard until that third little man spoke in tongues. That little man prayed a perfect prayer in the Vietnamese language, and who, a man who had never been outside the United States. So you see, this American serviceman heard and understood, got the witness that this was a supernatural manifestation. Paul says that tongues are a sign to the unbeliever, and this was the very thing that happened uh, in that case. So uh, uh, the tongues oftentimes today is proven to be in a known language. There was a time at the Cleveland chapter, even not quite as long as that incident ago, that incident I just mentioned. I was speaking at the Cleveland, Ohio chapter just last spring. And we had, it was a big chapter. We had a lot of people uh, there and, uh, and about 75, I taught on the baptism. We had about 75 people come into the prayer room for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Most of them received. And I was walking around after we'd given instruction and prayed. I was walking around praising God in tongues and in helping and encouraging people to pray in the spirit and I noticed a young man trailing me around uh, and sort of praying too and I didn't pay too much attention to it and afterwards he came up to me and said would you be interested to know what I heard you saying as you were praying for these other people I said no what and he said you I heard you speaking Spanish and over and over you were saying as you bent over to pray with people praying in the spirit you were saying I will praise him I will praise him I will praise him speaking clearly in Spanish well I had no awareness that that was happening you see I was simply praising God in tongues as I do in every case like that where we're helping pray for other people but it was my spirit praying supernaturally and it happened to be and that at least part of the time in the Spanish language which this young man understood uh, one of the most remarkable instances of this that I know came to me uh, through a friend in New Zealand to whom it happened it's interesting that all four of us who are carrying on your seminar here Derek Prince Bob Mumford Charles Simpson myself 
made a discovery that all four of us have had the privilege of ministering in New Zealand, halfway around the world. There's a great outpouring of the Spirit over there. But a young Pentecostal minister who set up the meetings for me in New Zealand uh, told me how this thing happened to him as he was ministering in New Zealand. And he, he had been teaching on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And in the audience, uh, there were some Maori Indians. The Maoris were the native Indians to New Zealand, like our American Indians were here. They were the native indigenous population before the British came. And they still are a prominent minority group there with certain special uh, restrictions and privileges by the government. And they had their own language. And some of the people are still fairly primitive, like our American Indians. And in this meeting where Al was teaching on the baptism, there were some Maori Indians. And after the service, Al was giving instruction to people to receive the baptism. And there was a Maori Indian who was a candidate, a Christian who was a candidate for the baptism. He could scarcely speak the English language, had difficulty with it. And Al and another minister who knew both English and the Maori dialect were praying for people in this room. And Al was praying for this brother to receive the baptism who was having a struggle and not getting anywhere. And suddenly Al began to speak in tongues fluently and at some length. And this Maori Indian's face lit up and he began to nod his head and all at once he began to speak in tongues. And the brother who was watching this, who knew Maori, testified later to Al and to me. He told the same story to me. He said, as I listened to Al praying over this brother in tongues, suddenly Al, who knew no Maori naturally, began to speak fluent Maori and in his speaking he began to give instructions to this brother as to how to receive the baptism in his own language. And one of the things that he told him was, the Holy Spirit does not speak, you must speak. You must open your mouth and speak the words the Holy Spirit gives. This he said to him in Maori, supernaturally, the same kind of instructions that we give in English, you see. So we could take up several hours of videotape giving you this kind of, these kinds of illustrations. But we've shared these simply because uh, of the criticisms that come about speaking in tongues. Let's move right on now, deal with one other question. People say, can you have the baptism without tongues? Scripture says, with God all things are possible. So, of course, this can happen. And my personal conviction is I'm not everyone who's teaching as I'm teaching would agree with this. I have Pentecostal friends who would not agree. But my personal conviction is that you cannot be dogmatic and say that a person must speak in tongues in order to have the baptism. But I think we've clearly shown from Scripture that it is the norm. It is the expected thing. I believe personally that God started it right on the day of Pentecost when he spent, sent speaking in tongues as the evidence of the baptism. And I don't believe he's changed his mind since. And that while things being equal, that's still the sign or evidence which will come today. We look for it, we encourage it, we teach about it, and we pray for people in those terms. I will not, I've reached the point where I will not pray for someone who says, I want the baptism, but I don't want the tongues. I say, brother, you don't want me to pray for you. I don't think we have a right to come to God dictating how it's to happen. I don't believe God makes mistakes, and I believe he started it right on the day of Pentecost. But because of false teaching and because of ignorance and uh, a lot of other things, people have built up these fears and emotional prejudices. And so some who move into the Spirit and, and manifest in other ways that God has, has blessed them by his Spirit, and I think baptize them in their Spirit, but they have quenched the tongue. God will not force you, you see, to speak in tongues. He's not going to prize your mouth open and waggle your tongue around and make you speak out in tongues. But this is what the Spirit woos you to do. He wants you to do. And we've learned, we've come to understand by teaching, and we've seen it demonstrated in life thousands of times, that once people understand the procedure, when we pray for them to receive the baptism, they will speak in tongues. But, as I say, when somebody says, do you, uh, can't you have the baptism without it? Yes, it can happen. But I like Derek Prince's answer to this. When somebody says, well, can you have the baptism without tongues? 
Derek often responds this way. He says, well, can an elephant be an elephant without a trunk? <laughs> yeah, but it makes for a funny looking elephant. Uh, the elephant is a trunk is a very important part of his equipment. You see, he feeds himself with it. He bathes himself with it. And if you see an elephant without a trunk, he'd look a little strange. Well, we believe that people who are baptized in the spirit without tongues are funny looking elephants. I mean, they're trunkless elephants. You see, I think something is missing from your experience. I don't say that critically. I simply say it knowing that there is something more. I've had the privilege of ministering with a precious brother up in Kansas, uh, American Baptist minister named Ernie Gruen. And Ernie has said about the baptism in tongues, he says, if you get the baptism without tongues, he said, you've missed out on the prayer part of the baptism. As we said in the beginning, speaking in tongues is a supernatural way to pray. It is spirit-inspired, spirit-directed prayer. And when you've quenched that, then you've missed out on one of the most prominent, if not one of the truly great blessings that comes with the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the ability to pray in this supernatural way, to pray with power that you could not possibly pray with before. And uh, I like further what Ernie Gruen has said about his own concern when he was seeking the baptism in the Holy Spirit and saw the necessity of tongues. And many Pentecostal people have used this argument, and it's a good one. They say, well, how do you know you're baptized in the Spirit if you don't speak in tongues? The reverse of that is when somebody says, are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? How do you know? And they say, praise God because I speak in other tongues. That's a good answer. It's scriptural. You, you know that you've received the blessing of God because you have the scriptural evidence of that blessing in your life. And Ernie was seeking the baptism that way, and he developed a rather strange little prayer, but I'll pass it on to you because I think it's worth remembering. Ernie saw that he needed for his own security to have the experience that the apostles had. And so he couched his prayer this way. He said, Lord, I want the baptism in with the tongues like they got it. He said, because Lord, if I don't get what they got the way they got what they got, how'll I know I got what they got? <laughs> but Lord, if I do get what they got the way they got what they got, then I'll know that I got what they got. Well, now, the English grammar may not be too good in that, but I think the point is clear, you see. Why try to improve upon the way uh, that the Lord does it? But in all truth, because of the false teaching and prejudice, when people are all crushed in with fear, they may not speak in tongues at the time they receive the baptism. They may not do it till later. I've had this happen to people I prayed for. It happened uh, uh, while I was uh, still preaching over here in Sharon, Pennsylvania. People that we prayed for to receive the baptism and the Lord gave me a strong witness that they'd received the baptism and they just sat there like fence posts. I mean, there was no emotional response or anything else, but I got this inner witness. They've got it. But I wasn't happy with it, my witness. But you know, a few days later, these folks came to me and said, you know what started happening to us when we were in our prayer time this morning? And I said, no, what was that? And they said, we began to speak in other tongues. Well, praise the Lord. You see, they got free enough in the spirit to relax and let God have his way. Every person who is baptized in the Holy Spirit, and some of you may be in that category, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you can. You have potentially the ability. God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within you in the supernatural way, gives you that ability, even though you may not have learned how to express it. So let me encourage you in your own sharing and teaching and in your own seeking, seek the blessings of God in scriptural terms. You seeking or teaching on the baptism in the Holy Spirit, seek it or teach about it in scriptural terms. Expect this beautiful supernatural evidence which is not emotionalism, it's not gibberish, it's not fanaticism, it's a precious gift that God himself ordained should arrive along with the baptism in the Holy Spirit as the sign 
or evidence that one has received. Let me conclude it by saying it this again. God did it right on the day of Pentecost. We don't have to change or to try to improve on the way God does things. He knows just exactly what he knows. Uh, he does just exactly what he does in order to accomplish what he wants accomplished. So be open and be willing to receive the blessings of God in the ways that the scriptures promise. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promises in the word of God. We thank you for the precious outpouring of the Holy Spirit of which we are a part in this day. We thank you for the return of the miraculous to our Christian experience and that you're wanting to restore to us all the miraculous gifts and ministries that made the early church great. We thank you that you've touched our lives uh, in this way. And we pray, Lord, that uh, every person here and every person who sees this tape will be open to receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit in scriptural terms and to welcome and embrace this precious manifestation of tongues, which is the supernatural evidence of the arrival of the Holy Spirit with power in the believer's life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. This concludes this study by Don Basham.